This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Please follow along in your own Bibles or as the text is presented on the screens above. Hear the word of the Lord. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so I want to introduce uh, to you Anne Snowberg. If you don't know Anne, would you stand up, Anne? And I have a few things to say about Anne. She uh, has been in process, and she's been a chaplain in the area for a few years. She's gone to North Park Seminary, gotten her degree there, and then last weekend in Detroit, where they make cars, Anne was ordained in the Covenant Church. So, yeah. So, um, and. The, the, other, the reason I'm saying this now is she's going to help serve communion later. We'll be up here together, and so um, that's, that's, this is Anne. We appreciate you. Yeah. Okay. She has some fans out there in the fan club. Uh, also, I want to say this. Baptism is about five weeks from today. We do a baptism every year, uh, outdoor baptism every year anyway, and uh, that'll be at Beaver Lake Park on August 13th. And if you're interested in being baptized, please see me or one of the other pastors. So Paul is over and over and over again confronting the Corinthian people and through that letter he wrote, we get confronted with the same thing. On their spiritual arrogance or their, uh, their pride, they are puffed up. The, the word for arrogance in, in the Greek language is a picture word, and it means puffed up, and, or uh, we would say full of hot air. So here's just some pictures that get us into a picture word. There's a rooster, if you can see it, and guess what the rooster is doing? Crowing about something that is about him. And then, this is a little bit more subtle, but uh, Will Ferrell, I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. You know that one from Ron Burgundy? I think it's called The Anchorman, if I remember right. But um, there's a formula that we see here in the letter that Paul wrote that is going on in Corinth that he's addressing. And it has to do with people having spiritual or special knowledge and then having spiritual or special gifting, and then or special experiences in the spirit. So those those three things: knowledge, gifting, and experience. Like Izzy, you get puffed up, and you think you're more spiritual than someone else. And this is Paul is addressing that particular topic over and over again from different angles, as we'll see throughout the letter. Um, and uh, when this 
what happens in this is that people who have this special gifting then get their heads puffed up and then they get judgmental. Those two things go together. I think you know that. But when people are judgmental, there's always somebody that gets hurt. And what this text will, I think, help us deal with is actually being on the hurting end as well as the one who does the hurt because uh, Paul is going to show us how to, how to walk through that. Hurt people tend to hurt people. You've probably heard that one before. And it's true that uh, people who have been hurt tend to pass the hurt on to others. There's kind of a ricocheting effect throughout history of hurt people hurting people. And it, oftentimes, the way that works is that people get, they, they said, I'm better. They were going to prove themselves that they're not as weak or uh, as vulnerable as people think they are. They're going to uh, they work hard to be better, try to validate their lives, prove themselves, and in doing so, they end up hurting others. And so Paul is going to show us maybe a different way to do that. Uh, I want to look at, or this is just, we're going to walk through this fairly quickly. So, uh, sources of hurt, we find those in verses 1 through 6, the source of hurt and Paul's processing of that hurt that he might have felt, uh, and we'll see how he dealt with that. And then we're, he's going to ask them three questions, as, uh, and those questions will be asked of us as well. I believe the Holy Spirit will do that, and we'll get to that part. Then we'll get to the communion table. So there you go. The source... That this is part of what you may not know, uh, but I'm going to give you some little information here, back, sort of background stuff. Paul was in Corinth for 18 months, roughly, we don't know, roughly 52 AD. For, for 18 months, he stayed there. He lived with these people. They got to see him. And when you know somebody, he's not just a traveling evangelist that comes through. <clears throat> you actually get to see him function in everyday life, brushing his teeth or whatever, and the, the things that happen in everyday life when you get to know somebody who's not perfect. <clears throat> so um, we all know that when you get to know people, there's that side to them. So they knew that about Paul. They knew that he uh, wasn't this, this great speaker from somewhere else. He made tents there in that place. And then he left, and he went to Ephesus, and then from Ephesus on to Syria, and then he's coming back towards Corinth now. But while he was gone, another man named Apollos, who we run into in the text. I don't know if you noticed, but in verse 6, Apollos is brought up. Paul, Apollos, we find in Acts chapter 18, and here's what the scripture says about Apollos. He was a very eloquent speaker. Now, you can see the people in Corinth are comparing Paul and Apollos. If we take Paul at his word, Paul is not that great of a speaker. He's okay with that, by the way. He doesn't, and we're going to see that in the text. He's obviously a great writer, great thinker. Uh, he's the, in, anointed by the Spirit, <laughs> to say the least. But he is not, in, by worldly standards, a great speaker. And so he's being compared to, and that can kind of hurt when you're being compared to someone else. And at the same time, he has a great appreciation for Apollos. It's not Apollos' fault. The problem is with these people in Corinth. So there's, there's judgment being uh, directed towards Paul. And the problem that Paul has, and you'll see it in this letter, particularly this letter in 2 Corinthians, is that Paul has to straighten these people out. He was the founding pastor of the church. He knows these people, and he has to straighten them out and say uh, things that they don't want to hear without himself sounding like, I'm kind of a big deal, you know. He has to reestablish his authority without crossing that line of, making himself important. So watch, just watch him do it. 
as we go through these first uh, six verses here. It says in verse 1 that Paul has been entrusted, or that uh, yeah, entrusted with the secrets uh, of God, the secret things of God. We ran into that phrase last week. When Paul uses the phrase secret things of God, he's playing a word game with the Corinthians who think that the secret things are these things that they've experienced through their knowledge, experience, and gifting. And Paul is saying the secret thing of God is Christ and him crucified. Remember that from last week, if you were here? That's for Paul. That is the, the wisdom or the, from God, the mysterion is the Greek word, that has been revealed. It was hidden for the ages, and now it's been revealed. And it's, it's there for those who understand it by the Spirit. That's where we were last week. So the secret things of God, Paul immediately establishes his authority as one who is grafted on to the gospel. It is not about him. It is about the gospel. And then he goes on to verse 2. Now it is required of those who have been given a trust. He's been entrusted with this mystery of Christ and him crucified, that they must prove themselves faithful. Not successful. Paul is not concerned about outcomes. He is concerned about his faithfulness to what he's been entrusted with. But where success is not found in the New Testament, in case you were wondering. There's not a concern for success. Do we live in an area where success has a little bit of meaning and value? It's, not, it's just foreign to the way Paul is thinking. His concern is that he is faithful. And he knows that he is, if he is faithful, he can trust the outcomes to God. Success is all about focusing on the outcome. How do I get there? And faithfulness is all about focusing in on what you've been entrusted with and just being faithful to it. And when you have that, you have peace, and no one can take that peace away, and you can't get hurt by these things that, says, that say something like, Paul, you're not a very good speaker. And Paul can say, yeah, well, I'm, ba- I'm just being faithful. And that's as far as it goes. Then in verse 3, he says, uh, I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. I don't need the validation of other people. I don't care, Paul says. Um, My value comes from being faithful to the gospel, which says I am valuable. You know, I mean, it's, it's that kind of logic that Paul is referring to. Now, I'm going to say something about, uh, by the way, this is this shirt that some of you have commented on. Do you like it? This is a 4th of July kind of deal. Some of you have gotten into the theme a little bit. And this was my dad's uh, shirt, and he died about 10 years ago, but I got this shirt. I claimed it when he died. And um, uh, so there's a, there's a whole story there about this shirt. But where I want to go is about how he dressed when he got older and he played tennis, and uh, I, I remember one day we were playing uh, tennis together, and um, he didn't really look like he cared how he dressed. And so he had a wide-brim hat, which, um, you know, that's okay in and of itself, but then he had that zinc oxide stuff on his nose, and he had, remember back in the 70s, they had these big glasses, that he wore these huge glasses, and this wasn't the 70s anymore, this was the 90s, <laughs> You know, and, 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 and then he had these shorts on that were a little, uh, you know, goofy looking and skinny legs and all the rest. I said, Dad, you look ridiculous. And then he just smiled at me as if to say, um, yeah, someday you'll be okay with that. 
In other words, I don't care what anybody says about me. I'm not getting sunburned today. And um, it's not about fashion here. Um, I don't care who judges me, Paul is saying. He's freed up from that. So Paul focuses on the cross. He focuses on being faithful. He's freed up from the opinion of others. Do you see why Paul's not going to get hurt by their criticism? And the fourth thing that is, he's, he's very humble about it. Listen to this. He says, uh, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me, make me innocent. Uh, I, don't have, I don't judge myself, he says. I, I am not sure I'm a very good judge of myself. Truth be told, I've probably done things that my conscience hasn't registered as being wrong. I'll trust that to God, though. Because I know God, I know his character, I know that he knows everything, and I know that he's gracious. But I'm not gonna, I can't pass judgment even on myself. You guys are passing judgment on me, I don't even know how to judge myself. But my conscience is clear. But that's not enough. There's more beyond that. So he's, he's humble as well. And then we come to this verse that says that I'm just going to let it go. God is going to judge everything in the end. Wait till the time of the Lord, and everything will come to light. Everything that is hidden in men's hearts, women's hearts, will be exposed. I can trust God for that. I can't tell what people's motivations are right now. People are really good at you know, hypocrisy and positioning themselves and all the rest. And just let judgment come when it comes and let God be God. So that's how he walks through their criticism. And he gives them some advice. And then in verse 6, he says, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit. And it's so that they can learn what they need to learn. It's not about, Paul is very good. He, he has nothing against Apollos. He just saying, take these things and apply them to myself and to Apollos, and you will stop comparing us. You've got to stop judging. All right, so let me get to the three questions that Paul asks. And these are the questions that uh, I pray that the Holy Spirit will be asking us as well. The first question has to do, uh, here, here it is right out of the text, who makes you different from anyone else? It's a who question. So the answer to that would be, as Izzy said, it's God. God is the one who makes you different. We can, uh, we can take those differences and run with them and be responsible for them. We can be entrusted with them, as Paul says, but ultimately they are from God. And you can kind of see where he's going here. So he, he goes a little deeper. And he asks another question. What do you have that you did not receive? What, this is one of those questions that you can sit down with before God for hours and keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. And Paul is daring you, he's daring the Corinthians, he's daring me to try to answer that question. Just come up with something. What do you have? What's on your list of things that you have that you did not receive from God? And, and think of your, your family setting, your, the, the nation you were born in, your friends, your personality, your looks, your brains. What is it that you, your job, what is it that you say, you can say, oh, I worked so hard to get this job and I went to school and all the rest, but who gave you the brains to do that? Who gave you the hands? Who gave you the feet? Who, who, who? It's all God. And so Paul is saying here, the, he's trying to get gratitude flowing in their veins. I just finished reading Hillbilly Elegy. I don't know if anyone, just let me see your hand if you've read it. Or, yeah, Hillbilly Elegy. I would highly recommend the book. And it's a story, I, I, this is pretty much what's on the cover, so I don't think I'm going to spoil it for you. 
but uh, it's a story of an Appalachian uh, boy who becomes uh, a young man. And in Appalachia, life is hard. I think you know that. But this is, he's describing what he would say would be a typical life in Appalachia with a mother who's an addict. He had, she had at least five husbands, but I'm, honestly, as I read the book, I think I lost count of what, how many men were in his life, how much chaos was in his life, the author's life. He's just telling his story. And the expectations for that life were pretty low. But he had a grandma, and he had a few other people. He had a sister, too, that was, was fairly healthy. And this grandma, she was a tough old turkey or whatever. You gotta, if you know the story, she was tough as can be. And, uh, but she kept pushing him in some ways that were good for him. After high school, he ends up going into the Marine Corps and does four years there and then goes to college and then graduates from Yale Law School. And guess what? He becomes part of the middle class. And the, the book is, it's that journey. It's all about that journey from white trash, as he would call it, to middle class. And he has some observations to make that relate to this text. Class privilege. You may say, I don't have, if, if you're middle class, you have class privilege. I'm not even going to use the race card here. Just class privilege, if you're middle class. Not to, it, 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 he'll, he'll identify for I'm not going to give you the, the things there. But what he noticed is that how thankful he was for those little things in his life that were rays of light. His grandma, his sister, his aunt. People that told him there might be another life out there if you just pursue it. And then he noticed when he gets into the middle class how everybody in the middle class just takes all that stuff for granted. They just assume that it's there. No one's thankful. For, he gets so thankful for these little things that, that middle class people just assume are part of life. This is Paul, though. For Paul, get this straight, everything is grace. Everything is grace. You have no claim of ownership on anything. Nothing. You don't, own a, you don't possess anything, Paul would say. So everything is grace, and the only response is gratitude. Okay, so before we go to the communion table, a little uh, literary device thing here. Uh, oh, I need to give you that third question, just because some of you can't stand to not have that third question up there. You've got three questions. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So there's, I think you can see the meaning of that. So rhetorical questions are questions that are intended to not have an answer to, but to have a huge response to, if, if you know what I'm saying here. Well, let me probe that with you. The greatest, I think, rhetorical question in the Old Testament comes out of Job chapter 38. And for 37 chapters, Job has been asking God questions, mostly why, right? Why, why me? Why am I suffering so much? Just give me a day in court with God so I can plead my case. And finally, you get to 38 where God speaks, and God becomes the one who's asking questions of Job. And there's no answer to these questions, but there's a huge response that is demanded of them. So here's, here's from Job 38. I have some questions for you, God says to Job, and I want some straight answers, Job. Where were you when I created the earth? What's Job going to say? I mean, what's Job going to say? Uh, uh, you know, when the teacher asks you the question you don't know, the answer to... 
Tally, since you know so much, who decided on his size? Certainly you must know that, or you know that. And who came up with the blueprints and the measurements? So God asked Job three questions, just like Paul asked these three questions. And there's no answer that Job can give. All Job can do is respond by getting down on his knees or on his face and saying, God, oh, I, I give up. You're awesome. You're beyond me. You're the mystery. You're great. That's Job's response to those questions. Now, Paul, if you listen carefully to what Paul is doing here, same kind of deal, only instead of presenting creation as his imagery, he's presenting Christ and him crucified. And he invites you to look at Christ and him crucified and look at the gift that is Christ and him crucified. And how can you look at that? How can you know that? How can you observe that without gratitude in your heart? Is there any other response to God's grace than gratitude? So what I want to ask you to do right now is to stand and we will focus in on this verse, the, the second question, and we'll just ask that question of ourselves and then I'll pray and then we'll have communion. So here's the question. What do you have that you did not receive? Just meditate on that for a minute. What do we have that we have not received? Oh Lord, as we look at the cross and ask that question, as we look at how you were fatally hurt for us, what can we say? What can we say except you are so good, you are so gracious to us, we are, have grateful hearts. And if our hearts are in the right place, Lord, it's only gratitude that we would have. Gratitude for the things that we have seen in our lives, the things that we have been gifted with in our lives, the good things of everyday life, the friends and the family and the food, all that kind of stuff. And for the things that are unseen that are really forever eternal life stuff. Gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. Forgive us, O Lord, for our ungrateful ways. May your spirit each day remind us of our need for the gift that you offer at this table. We come now to receive it again with grateful hearts. In Christ's name, amen.